Hey guys, this is Emmett, and I'm here with John, and this is your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. John and I are characteristically underslept and overcaffeinated and ready to try to make a complex point we don't know if we can pull off. And this is going to be in a sort of like a mutual uh, audio essay like we did on the self-design of American paranoia, looking at Strauss, Boris Groys, and a video by Bradley Trammell. Today, we're going to be looking at Mark Fisher's famous Exiting the Vampire's Castle essay, Joan Didion's Fixed Ideas, America Since 9-11, and an essay called Feminism, the Taliban, and the Politics of Counterinsurgency, written by Saba Mahmoud and Charles Hirschkind. And the real object of this is to catch some historical resonance some rhyming, as Mark Twain might say, and to tease out some things that have been nagging me especially lately between how I saw things play out during the lead up to the Iraq war and after 9-11, all of that, and what we're seeing now that Trump is out of office. And I want to do that because the way that we tend to talk about these things like cancel culture or wokeness or whatever, the fact that people seem mystified or uh, somehow can't believe that the CIA released a series of promotional videos that features people of color, queer people, disabled people, you know, doing the whole identity politics thing just like Disney hiring an HR department to run them through Ralph and D'Angelo white guilt training, white fragility training or stuff like that as Chris Rufo covered it, you know, whatever, whatever people seem to not fully understand that this is like, this is hegemonic now. One, two, um, it is not exceptional for all sorts of reasons. And at least that's what I think. And this essay, this audio essay is an attempt to try to come to terms with that and to flesh that out a little bit more so that we don't feel um, helpless and decontextualized as these things unfold in front of us. So I'm gonna open with a little bit of Didion's Fixed Ideas essay, which is set again pretty it opens in the aftermath of 9-11 right she's living in new york the week after 9-11 she has to go on a book tour what book is she touring political fictions this is her very perspicacious coverage of american politics from the 1988 election to the dawn of the compassionate conservative movement that uh bears aloft george w bush in 1999, 2000, right? And she notices a few things. She notices that there's this disconnect between the public that she sees on this book tour and what the American elites are asking of the American public, which is to go to war. And that there seems to be this moment where people are willing to ask historical questions, understand historical ironies, and try to contextualize what's just happened. And that 
no one in the commanding heights of the media political structure really want to do that in a serious way. Instead, a bunch of things become taboo. They become fixed ideas, as she says. So after her book tour, she returns to New York and she sees that in her wealthy community, there are flags everywhere. And then she sees not far from where she is in a more working class community that there are fewer. And she says, I did not interpret this as an absence of feeling for the country above 96th street. I interpreted it as an absence of trust and the efficacy of rhetorical gestures. There is much about this return to New York that I had not expected. I had expected to find the annihilating economy of the event, the way in which it had concentrated the complicated arrangements and misarrangements of the last century into a single irreducible image being explored, made legible. On the contrary, I found what had happened was being processed, obscured, systematically leached of history and so of meaning, finally rendered less readable than it had seemed on the morning it happened. As if overnight the irreconcilable event had been made manageable, reduced to the sentimental, to protective talismans, totems, garlands of garlic, repeated pieties that would come to seem in some ways as destructive as the event itself. We now had, quote unquote, the loved ones. We had, quote unquote, the families. We had, quote unquote, the heroes. And I don't know if you remember this, John, but it did seem like there's this juncture, even though I was dimly aware of it as a kid, where people were asking quite straightforwardly, why was this happening? You know, why did this take place? You know, what was going to be a satisfying answer? David Foster Wallace's essay about like watching it all unfold from middle of nowhere, Illinois captures that sentiment, I think really, really well. And I, as someone who worked in a bookstore during the whole Trump campaign and like for a while after, watched a similar thing sort of play out. Didion, because she's on a book tour, does bring up what happens at bookstores and it's that all the foreign policy stuff disappears off their shelves. Suddenly everybody is trying to figure out what happens. And the same thing happens after Trump. There was a while, there was like three or four months where you could not find a single copy of, uh, what's that Hannah Arendt book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. You just, you couldn't find it anywhere at all, right? And there's one where we're just like, what happened? How do we understand that this game show host could suddenly become president? That this Nazi, as some people saw him, could become president or whatever. And everybody was grasping at explanations. And then, of course... Just like after 9-11, the real, the, the official explanations started to roll in and they were all pretty unsatisfying, right? Uh, when we were kids, the explanation for what happened in 9-11 was that uh, they hate us for our freedoms, right? That was the line I heard over and over and over as a kid, totally like a historical, nothing to do with any of the, you know, it's, it's like that tweet where it's like uh, me sowing fuck yes me reaping fuck no <laughs> um and the same thing happened with uh with trump uh an entire liberal media economy had made it possible for a game show host to totally hijack its own premises and turn them against all of them and yeah. they were helpless so right. it became it there must be this 
enormous, pervasive, like explicitly like Nazi or white nationalist movement that has buoyed Donald Trump, billionaire, who has been on TV forever <laughs> into the public eye so that he could take the presidency, right? Yeah, there was, um, it's interesting because it's making me think back to when we did the Steve Bannon episode mm-hmm. where he was on the Errol Morris uh, documentary. Just because he walks you through that campaign and you remember all those moments, mm-hmm. um, like with the Clinton abusees or whatever being yeah. trotted out, like all that different stuff. And like, you just see like, oh, that was, there's so much was going on there. Like mm-hmm. a lot was happening and some very savvy political animals like we're totally able to get in there and mess stuff up and put Trump in office. Um, and then you look at the way that it was then understood after the fact. And it's just like, <laughs> you know, I don't even know what to say. Like if it, it's exactly the same as like, Oh, they hate us for our freedoms. Like they see mm-hmm. the way that we live and like that we are free and we're Christian and they just can't stand it. And they brainwash to come die to stop us like Mm -hmm. like in the same way that was unsatisfying it was totally unsatisfying that like whiteness was somehow like an idea that could be used to explain trump well one because whiteness is an idea without content and two like (laughs) you know what i mean like yeah well it's schrodinger's whiteness right it is both like totally full of malevolent content and it is also not a real thing why are you talking about it yeah i mean Obviously, there's something to be said about race in America. Yeah, hundred percent. I totally said that on the show over and over again. Yeah, but I think that the way that people have used the term whiteness in the media, it's like a very convenient for them that it can kind of be whatever it needs to be. Which, like you said, it's just sort of like vaguely malevolent, and it it's something you can gesture to, and then any kind of counter argument is immediately like part of whiteness or something, and so it functions very neatly for them to just have a kind of like easy uh, job for, for, for being a part of the discourse, you know, they don't even have to work hard. Right. I mean, I I was thinking about this, you know, when I was talking to a friend of the show, Khaled, who we'll have on, he and I went out to dinner while he was in town and we were talking about the, I think we saw a few of these while we were walking around, you know, because I live in LA. We saw that in this house, we believe love is love. Science is real. The whole, the whole thing, like all those lawn signs. And I was rereading this Didion essay and I was remembering the yellow ribbons. Like there was this moment where during the Iraq war, I remember waking up in the lead up to it and walking outside like to my suburban Illinois neighborhood. And suddenly all of these trees had these big yellow ribbons around them. And then you saw these car magnets or bumper stickers show up and they were the support our troops things. If you had any critiques of US foreign policy or like the insane Colin Powell with the vial of anthrax thing, (laughs) you know, like remember that or any of that stuff, um, the, the response was, oh, you don't support the troops. You hate troops. Remember what that did in Vietnam? You fucking traitor. Like, yeah. (laughs) You know, and so, and I think a lot of people felt constrained by that 
it was like just putting lamb's blood over the door frame for some of them i'm sure in the same way uh-huh. that like having those like lawn signs is it's like i need everyone to know that like i'm a good person and i believe all the right things you know like i don't want to ha- i don't want to have any uncomfortable thoughts here ask too many questions about like what's going on you know like one important question might be like how is it that trump's presidency was basically run by jared kushner whose family are huge democratic party donors and that functionally his presidency was basically a standard democratic presidency. It's just happened that he was like the perfect carnival barker to piss off the media. Yeah. I mean, it's often pointed out or was that he was a Democrat himself for quite a long time until becoming a, like it, it really strains (laughs) (laughs) one's credulity or something (laughs) to be like, Oh, this matters so much. These, these distinctions departure. Yeah. Yeah, Like it's, it's so crazy or whatever. And I mean, like, you know, that's neither here nor there. Um, Yeah. It's, it's remarkably similar these two moments. And I think that's kind of the whole thing. And it, cause you brought up the whole, like, no, different parts of like the government state and security apparatus are like public relations woke or whatever. Right. Exactly. And also like some of the major media entities in the country are just yeah. doing that very explicitly now. Whereas before it was like kind of, I mean, you know, I live in LA, I get it. Like there's it's, a lot of this stuff is, I mean, the Marvel MCQ we've talked about this uh-huh. on the show is like, uh, I mean, there was like a weird Marvel comics, Lockheed Martin Avengers miniseries that came out like after the second Avengers movie or something like that. <laughs> it was a brief run of comics, you know? Yeah. Which, you know, honestly, shouldn't even be shocking to anybody. No. I mean, well, no, I'll say it shouldn't be shocking to you if you're like interested in stuff like this podcast. <laughs> At yeah. least because like there's a really long history of like look at Top Gun or whatever bullshit yeah. like that. Like there's a long history of these two kinds of things being married really closely. And I think that's just kind of like what it is. But you know, whenever so whenever I first started seeing like woke security state stuff, I don't know. I'm not trying to say it's difficult to like put it right. I'm not saying like um like a lot more world wise or something than you guys, but I definitely remember feeling like, Oh, this isn't surprising or weird or whatever, like at all. And it feels totally normal to me. that This is happening. And I, mm-hmm. I was trying to think about that as we were preparing for the show. Like why, why exactly was that? Because some people were quite, you know, like, whoa, like, look, this is, you know, like it was some event for them. And I was wondering like what kind of brought us to that point. And it made Mm -hmm. me think about the fact that at least for like, I think for us and for Gen Xers before us, we, we definitely got, and maybe it's been like this before, but we got like leftism as like pastiche, and so yeah. and explicit as counterculture right that's important yes yes too. yes yeah. Cast, like countercultural pastiche yeah and so leftism is like being a crust punk and like sort of an anarchist but it's also like being an old daughtered communist you know with your stalin books and it's also like being a queer activist or being mm-hmm. a like new age feminist like pagan or it's like it's there are a lot of like various things 
were kind of bundled together under like the left opposition to the mm-hmm. establishment. And especially for the people I think who were kind of living under Reagan, there is this sense of like the Christian conservative right being the force that is like you are need to oppose. They are the dominant force. And so all of these things that could be seen as transgressive toward like American Christianity mm-hmm. could kind of be seen as like also trend, like it's all a part of the anti-capitalist or whatever struggle. And then we had our Clinton moment or whatever that was where no one did anything or cared, I guess, but then Bush comes and then it kind of reminds you that like, you know, there was a time when like the, the, we've said this before, like the Christian right was seen as like the most dangerous and scary force on the planet by pretty much everyone. Like, yeah, there was talk about like a new crusade. Um, And some of those guys were actually legit like that. Like there were weirdo Knights of Malta guys (laughs) over at Blackwater. (laughs) Very much fit that bill. That whole kind of thing. That was like a whole thing. And just like you do have guys like in the Trump administration, like Steve Miller, who like probably are something of like a white nationalist psycho. Like it's not that there is zero to any of these fears or the ideas. It's just that they become tools to maintain the status quo rather than critiques of the institutions they purport to critique. Right. Right. And I think that, so you're able, when you have someone like the Bush administration, which like I'll say probably was much worse than Clinton in many ways, (laughs) like without a doubt, like I'm not, a relativist. I don't think some of Clinton's foreign policy was good, but obviously Bush's was much worse. Mm -hmm. Um, A little known fact is right at the very end of the Clinton administration, there were some pretty like optimistic North and South Korea talks going on. Yeah. And Clinton was about to finalize um, what would have been a pretty salutary agreement, I think but he had to stay in the country because of the constitutional crisis that was brewing for the 2000 election. He never went there. And then as soon as Bush got in office, they were like, we're not fucking talking to North Korea. Like, fuck you. And and like totally just destroyed the whole thing. And so things like that, you know, like it's not that they aren't profoundly different in different ways as we switch from administration to administration, but I think the way that we grew up, maybe at least I grew up primarily under Republican presidents, Bush one and two, mm-hmm. not the first senior junior, but just junior twice. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, for many others, Reagan and things mm-hmm. like that, we came up and under this idea that like the cultural left pastiche opposition or whatever was like somehow more coherent than it was. And mm-hmm. like moral to some extent, and there was a kind of morality to that opposition and a kind of amorality and evil aspect to the uh, establishment. And then Obama gets elected and you're like, well, hey, like maybe weed will be legal and we'll have Medicare for all or something mm-hmm. like maybe things well, will be. Union card check, which he ran on, you know? Oh, yeah. Like there is all these kind of vague ideas of things and it's sort of like, well, like the bad guys are gone, I guess mm-hmm. now. And, and I mean, the, that time was when I kind of became wise to the fact that like no one was good if they were in government. 
Yeah. Um, as I was becoming a little less naive or whatever, but so it gets complicated. And then you realize that Obama's foreign policy is Bush, but worse and more Mm -hmm. and And more insidious. Yes. Less direct, you know, and you realize that probably Obama's foreign policy isn't even that related to him as a person. Like how many decisions did he actually make? Who knows, but it probably doesn't have that much to do mm-hmm. with who was in the office at that point. Like people at least start to float these as ideas. Like maybe the president doesn't matter. Maybe this is all like, you know, like how can we explain the fact that he was like a neoliberal, I guess, or whatever you want to call him. Right. The handling of the say. 2008 crisis, you know, yeah. you could also say like the Snowden leaks have a huge impact on oh, yeah. how we viewed his presidency. Uh, Chelsea Manning, you know, there were how hard he was on whistleblowers and things like that. The obvious expansion of a security state that sort of begins with, you know, this is why conservatives in America don't conserve anything, but like whatever the (laughs) chamber of commerce wants, you know, (laughs) and like a few dudes who were hardcore cold warriors that have managed to not die, like Kissinger (laughs) and like Elliot Abrams. (laughs) Those are the only things they conserve. Because as we've said before on the show, like the second, like Bush W's administration is really a sleeper cell for the Ford administration. It's <laughs> yeah. like that's where all of those guys cut their teeth because they were some of the only Republicans untainted by Nixon. Yeah. Right? Okay. So there are a few things that I want to say about this countercultural idea, right? To return to the theme and expand on some of what you've said is that the counterculture, because of the way it's structured, it's obviously not a class scrap. That's not what's happening here. It's, at some point the left stops really believing or caring about redistribution as such, or these like more traditional ideas of what the left was in the modernist moment, right? This is the end of history time. So it is really like a cultural, I mean, Simon Critchley's um, infinitely demanding book is basically like, if we do this, if we do this anarchistic small work on the edges of society that will create ruptures that change it. I mean, I think you can really only believe that in like the late eighties and early nineties, like believing that in 2021 is like, um, you're deeply diseased. I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) So I'm not saying he believes that now. I have no idea like where he's at, but um, there is, is that idea. And because it's countercultural and the way in which it's countercultural, as Lash points out, it's always like one step behind of capital. So it's critiquing something that has already died. Yeah. Right. And that's why when we take a look at this um, Mahmoud uh, Hershkind essay and they talk about how it's like Salman Rushdie is just like, you know, the fundamentalists say that we don't believe in anything, but actually what we believe in is freedom of speech edgy clothing, eating a bacon sandwich, a two-party system or whatever. And you're just like, (laughs) yeah, that's nothing. (laughs) It's just like, they say we believe in nothing, but actually we're the last man. (laughs) Um, We wear mini skirts and we kiss in public. Right, exactly. Or the, what is this group called? Like Women First or whatever. That's Jay Leno's wife's whole campaign against the Taliban. That's uh-huh. like, they're brutal to women, et cetera, et cetera. But like never really engages with the fact that we like funded them or that, you know, we have bombed the shit out of them or like done any of these things. You know, Women First credits themselves with stopping a gas pipeline from being built in Afghanistan. 
which is sure to guarantee that the women who live there remain in abject poverty. Like, yeah. if it can't develop, then you can't get any washing machines. You know what I mean? Like, that's never going to happen for you. It's easy to see how these countercultural ideas where it's just like, you know, wearing the veil is an affront to the transgression of ha- dyeing your hair and wearing ripped jeans. That's something that one of the liberal feminist writers in this, in this says. And it's like, what are you talking? Like, what is the substance of this? Like, this is totally airless. And this ends up becoming a tool of empire. Yeah, it's the whole thing because the Mark Mood piece um, with Hirschkind was like 2002 mm-hmm. and it really brought me back to read it. I'm like, man, this is like, because you wouldn't write that the same way, like even 10 years later, but it was like right in that moment where it's like we're currently in like beginning the forever wars that mm-hmm. I was going to grow up under um, yeah. that would kind of color my deep cynicism about everything <laughs> yeah <laughs> like you just watching the endless footage of like civilian carnage or reading any one of the dispatches from journalists over there about like five-year-old girls getting blown up by u.s bond like just the things like that becoming so commonplace as to be your everyday existence mm-hmm. like I feel like a large portion of the way that I am today about politics comes from just being like completely exposed and overexposed to what was going on over there via various forms of media for like most of my teenage years. And yeah, it totally. became very difficult to like really, because once you saw how bipartisan the support for the war was um, and secretly continued to be for a very long time, Yes. And, and it, it still is. We're still there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it makes you so you you understand that like your whole governmental system was like for that and you're like none of the stuff that they talk about like really matters, I think. Really that kind of dawned yeah. on me like until until anything is like different from that then it's all really just the same. And I think that that kind of explains I can't tell you the what exactly it felt like to see Trump on stage say that the war was like a fucking mistake. And like, it was bad he deal. said it was a mistake at the time and that it was horrible. And like, just, it was like the past 20 years of like just hypocrisy and like bullshit that you were forced to stomach and just live with while you listen to people talk about how good this or that party was when you, you know what I mean? Like you yeah, just have totally. to live with that and you can't really even say anything. That- yeah, if there's any contribution that he did, uh, it was that he could just say things like that because he was as corrupt as all of them, but he d- didn't give a shit and was willing to say it. And, and so I, he'd get away with just being like, yeah, that was a stupid idea and it's a bad deal for America. And everybody was like, yeah, I've been thinking that. He just said it. Yeah, and it's amazing because it's like that should be commonplace, but it mm-hmm. was sort of like this crazy catharsis to have it unleashed in mass media as like an opinion that really it got the people going, you know, yeah. and it really, it did. And it's so t- not to go on too long about this, but like given all that and like, obviously Afghanistan has a, like a, quite a lot of just very recent history. That's very complicated. And if mm-hmm. one ever looked into it, they could never believe anything that any like NGO released about it ever, because it's just obviously going to not, 
like their communication is not meant to be discursive. I would say like most (laughs) communication about this stuff. Yeah. It's not a part of a discourse. It's just like, these are the signals, how you respond to them is who you are. Peace. Like that's Mm -hmm. what's going on here. And, you know, we, we talk about how this all plays into the functioning of empire. And then that's, you know, that is just is what it is. I mean, I don't, it's hard to articulate exactly, but that's why I'm sort of unsurprised is because like, this has kind of been going on for a long time in a lot of different ways. And it isn't that shocking that they're like gay people are fine because it's like, yeah, why would they care? You know? Yeah. What what does that matter to them? Yeah. What does that, what does that mean? You know, and it also gives the lie to alleged left transgression. Right, right, right. Right. Like if this isn't going to threaten like these power structures, then like what exactly is it are you doing? Now, maybe you don't want to threaten certain power structures and you still think you can do some good within certain things. That's fine. But then you have to let go of the idea that what you're doing is transgressive and threatening to these power structures, right? Like you can't wear the radical garb, you know, and then do these things. It's just, it's like the... um the squad abstaining from the vote on expanding the budget for the Capitol Hill police, which basically enabled it, um, which was a democratic bill, despite the fact that they were ruthless to Tulsi Gabbard about her abstention from the second impeachment effort. And the fact that um, they were totally like, not only does do police departments need to be defunded, they need to be dismantled. Mm-hmm. Right. So that shows that like, whoops, none of this is what it says it is. But importantly, there are ways in which this gets enforced, right? And conservative, like total crocodile tears from conservatives, like to me about like cancel culture and shit like this. Like, I don't like cancel culture. I think it's real. I think it sucks. I've been in the online left, which we're now about to venture into because we're about to incorporate Fisher into this to know that it is like real and socially painful and all of those things. And like way more rampant now that it can happen anywhere online to anybody within certain social spheres and stuff like that. But before we do that, I want to give you a little taste of what that was like 20 years ago. Right. And this is Didion again. She says, there was open season on Susan Sontag. On a single page of a single issue of the Weekly Standard that October, she was accused of unusual stupidity, of moral vacuity, and of sheer tastelessness, all for three paragraphs in which she said, in closing, that a few shreds of historical awareness might help us understand what has just happened and what may continue to happen. In other words, that events have histories, political life has consequences, and the people who led this country and the people who wrote and spoke about the way this country was led were guilty of trying to infantilize its citizens if they continued to pretend otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! Um, Yeah, totally amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Especially, like, I was not old enough to know about anything like that at the time. So very interesting to see. How there's nothing new under the sun. Right, exactly, exactly. Okay, so we're going to move into the Fisher, which I think is like, I think Mark Fisher was a, and I mean this as both as compliment and critique, a deeply sensitive writer and thinker on the left, tragically took his own life um, not too long ago. But he left behind some so far lasting contributions, some of them being him expanding on the idea of the slow cancellation of the future. And this one, 
exiting the vampire's castle. And this comes from his experience of watching what comes to be called cancel culture from what we end up calling the woke left before those things become really solidified. And he has good instincts. He understands that it's going to be injurious to solidarity, that there is a class component to it, and that there's sort of like a hollow liberal left thing that seems to be fine with leaving the status quo as long as um, it gets to have its sort of like jouissance, right? So he comes up with some laws for the vampire castle, and I'm just going to enumerate them here. The first law of the vampire's castle is is individualize and privatize everything, right? So it's always more important to go after an individual than to have like what is called on the left a more structural critique. Um, And the second law is make thought and action appear very, very difficult. I like this one. You always, it's death by precautionary principle. You know what I mean? You don't want, you don't want to do anything. You don't know which communities you're going to harm by doing whatever. That's always right. It's always the recourse to harm, to bear life, to anything as if there are never going to be trade-offs right? You can only make utopian decisions and you have to wait for those to line up, which then makes it easier to go after individuals for wrong think, right? The third law of the vampire's castle is propagate as much guilt as you can. Uh, simple enough. Uh, the fourth <laughs> is essentialize, essentialize everything. Like we talked before about the weird Schrodinger-like content of whiteness or whatever. We could say this about any like racial identity categories if we've, if we've as we've watched them play out where they don't become mere elements of who somebody is. They become all of who somebody is. And he does a really good job of like noticing how that, that can happen, especially when you're trying to take somebody down. He says, notice the tax tactics. X has made a remark, has behaved in a particular way. These remarks slash this behavior might be construed as transphobic slash sexist, et cetera. So far, okay. You know, you can call somebody out for saying that, I guess. Like, you'd be like, hey, I disagree with that. I think it's wrong. Here's the crucial next step. But it's the next move, which is the kicker. X then becomes defined as a transphobe, sexist, etc. In other words, you can only be that now, forever. There can be no human change. There can be none of that. And he says, the fifth law is think like a liberal because you are one. I'm not really going to get into like this thing about what liberalism has and hasn't done. I think that's a very difficult conversation to have and outside the scope of what we're doing here because like liberal, neoliberal, these all basically uh, take on the meaning of uh, that thing I don't like. Yeah. I'm not really willing to talk about liberalism until I have time to read like a three volume history of the enlightenment. So until then (laughs) I'm just shelving it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But I still think we can notice like some of the important phenomena in front of us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And this is what's so weird about this HR culture. That's all about basically creating a corporate imperial vampires castle castle. It uses all of those things and instrumentalizes them. And you're uh, right to think if you're listening to this, well, I could imagine that becoming (laughs) the discourse of society generally. Uh, And that's because that's happening right now. (laughs) I liked when he talks about essentialization. He also talks about it in the other direction too, that at least 
in his view, no one is essentially something mm-hmm. and that means that people can be other things. And so I think he would see at least within the framework of like being a leftist, like the purpose of critique would then be for like some kind of dynamism mm-hmm. as a possibility. Like if you did something wrong, then you can change, you know, like, and that's like an organism that could probably keep going and like adapting to things. Whereas it's sort of clear that this is more like a game of, we don't have enough room for everybody or we don't want you all in here. So mm-hmm. this, we can kind of get rid of people this way and it's an easy way to do it. And it, you know, one day you're doing it the next day it happens to you or whatever, but it doesn't really matter. Um, it's, and it also means that you can ha- you ha- suddenly have binary flattened history, right? It's yeah. either good or bad. There's no complicated chain of events that have sometimes definite but often ambiguous interpretations that you have to really think about and try to internalize and understand. It's either destroy all this or keep all of this. And he points out that binary thinking. But that's, not, that's helpful for partisan thinking right? That is basically how element, even the centrists of the Democrats who really do not give a shit about this at all. It has dawned on them that it is incredibly convenient to get to do this. And Mm -hmm. the Republicans have their own version of this, right? Yeah. Like I'm not trying to like make some like, okay, we need to return to the GOP or whatever. Right. I'm just not so deeply in that sphere. So it's harder to see, but from what I have seen of it, it works in its own way over there, usually around ideas of like, what's America first mean or like whatever. And people get drummed out for asking the wrong questions or suggesting that this isn't simply a partisan issue. Right. We, yeah, there is, this is reminding me, I was, um, I was watching a live stream of a podcast called escape from plan a, which is like a, it's like a platform, I guess, for Asian Americans, but they're kind of trying to like raise the discourse uh, mm-hmm. amongst Asian Americans to be a bit better than just being like repetition of hegemonic kind of nonsense, like empty signifiers. This sounds cool. You should send me the link after this. I want to listen to this. Yeah, they're pretty cool. I like. I definitely don't agree with everything that they're always on about, but I appreciate getting to um, like find another kind of like slowly growing group of people thinking about stuff especially totally. from a different angle than what is like largely i would say a like anglo-saxon <laughs> group of, <laughs> of people that you know i'm usually yeah. seeing and hearing from um but they were talking about how like you know Minari came out it was a good movie like they liked it it was very well shot but it seems like these days the most kinds of asian american cinema or art that you can get is like it's a good story about how they're good people mm-hmm. at heart. And like, it's a beautiful immigrant story. The American dream can be real. Like all this stuff is getting reaffirmed by it. And um, we were talking about this. Somebody put in the chat, like no one will ever make a movie about the Virginia tech guy. <laughs> yeah. Dude. And the, so that brought something up of like, yeah, like, because that movie would be like taxi driver. And like, if you made a movie about taxi driver, but for Asian Americans, like people would be like, you can't portray us this way or like them that way, because like, what kind of message are you sending? And we need to have self-esteem or whatever. And somebody brought up the, the idea 
which I don't, there's not nothing to it that he, he, like Asian Americans are perhaps in a kind of like Lacanian mirror stage mm. where they're just starting to like exist in mass media enough to have some kind of sense that they're like a real body that has like effects on things mm. on a larger circle than just their immediate personal lives. Like they might be a political and social entity of some kind and that this seeing yourself in the iPhone screen is like the Lacanian mirror stage for like young people of that demographic today. Mm-hmm. And while I was thinking like, that's definitely, that makes a kind of sense to me because probably now more than ever, like the phone screen is where younger people are able to find anything yeah, like about the world, but it's exactly what we're talking about too, that, the reason you can't make Asian taxi driver is because like, that's bad. You know, like it's totally flat. Like, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's basically like, you can't say that like, um, you can't have like morally complicated individuals in like pieces of art often these days who aren't white. And that's not like really a rule. Like Mm -hmm. I've seen things that break that rule, but by and large it holds true. And I think because that's kind of what we're talking, that's the countercultural idea or whatever is that like it's developed a lot of its own kind of inner thoughts about these things. And one of them is that sort of like, we've brought this up a lot that you're you're uniquely like righteous and good because either you're not white or you're like directly a victim of something or whatever. And that makes you like this really good person Mm-hmm. However, I think that most of us alive have like probably read a few novels or seen a few great movies. And we kind of understand that like really great pieces of art often contain uh, narrative pieces of art, we'll say, have like characters, people of real deep ambiguity who feel like so real. And um it's extremely compelling because we recognize that within ourselves and within the people around Mm -hmm. us that like these really trite morality plays or whatever just aren't real and they're not meaningful and they don't accurately tell me anything about life. They don't reveal anything to me about reality or the truth. They're like a propaganda tool for people to kind of reinforce these really shallow ideas about like morality in the context of like American social cultural discourse, you know, which just couldn't be any more vacuous. And I don't know. It's interesting because you can say like, this is to the whole point of this episode. This is exactly the same type of shit that came out of Iraq. Like, yeah, hundred percent. I'm having like deja vu. The difference is that it would be like, the good American soldier. Yes. hundred percent. Absolutely. It's just that it's switched its content. Right. Yeah. Like and I think that that's why there's, it's not different on the other side. It came from the other side. Right. Exactly. So here's, what's <laughs> going to happen. Here's I, I will bet you in the next three years, there's going to be like Clint Eastwood's American sniper about an activist. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Oh, fuck, man. (laughs) You know, like, that will happen. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, that's, that's going to be like, one of the things that's, that's important there. So, okay, I've been thinking about this. This is some guy, this is a guy who I think should be entered into the American canon, 
after he's dead. Jim Shepard, my favorite contemporary fiction writer in America, also a great essayist and a good lecturer. You can find his essay on what he thinks fiction is supposed to be that he gives to Williams College where he teaches. He's a very funny lecture, very thoughtful. And it's called The Percheron in the Tunnel. Percheron is, of course, a type of horse. He tells this story about Emile Zola, the novelist, going to visit some coal miners. And while he is in the mine, he sees this enormous Percheron. And he wonders, understandably, how did you get it down here? And the guy looks at him and he says, Mr. Zola, that Percheron don't come down here but once as a foal. It's brought down here. It grows down here. It works down here. And then it dies down here. And he says, that, ladies and gentlemen, is a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Got him. <laughs> yeah, by which he means, in the thrust of the essay, that part of what we're supposed to do with fiction, with narrative art, and I agree with him here, is to really understand the troubling aspects of our own psyches. This doesn't mean that every character has to be a bastard in order to be interesting, but rather that no character is interesting unless there's something of a bastard, at least some of the time, because we're all a little fucked up. And I think that Fisher was sensitive to this when he's saying like, if we're just doing this binary, if we're just doing this essentialization, then this project is lost. And what Didion is pointing out politically about how it's infantilizing, she says at some point in the essay that it is hard to understand who's infantilizing whom <laughs> at some point in this chain of events when mm -hmm. some Harvard students think it's canceled because it's called My American Jihad, by which he meant my spiritual struggle for justice in America that I think we should all embark on as we take on civic life as Americans, right? Pretty down-home message that I need to yeah. be able to get behind, <laughs> right? Um, and I like how changing the title only mollified some people, but right. others were like, <laughs> even after inappropriate. That, even it's worse inappropriate for Arabs to speak at this moment. <laughs> right, right. And to also show, like, oh, I forgot to bring this up. One thing that I think is important, if you're just like, well, I don't know, this isn't like the true left as I understand it. You know, it's important to realize that, like, Barbara Ehrenreich was like on board with that Taliban or misogynists and like whatever bandwagon at that moment in time as well. Like, people I was surprised by that. Yeah, same, that. as were the authors, you know. So th th this is happening. But if we're thinking about like, what's the point of exhaust? And like, what are we trying to do? Is that I think we're trying to bring in some of these conflicting contextual elements, something of this human fallibility and something of this human glory that makes up the tapestry of history. We're trying to appreciate all of these facets. We're trying to tell the story of the Percheron in the tunnel. Otherwise, without those ironies, which have always been a part of the human story, right? If, if we think about, if we think about Pericles' funereal oration, 
towards the beginning of the Peloponnesian War and contrast that with, I think, the Athenian defeat in Sicily, where they're reduced to basically animals in a pit, like living in their own feces and dying of sickness and starvation with each other in total chaos and calamity and indignity. We get something of the ironies of empire. In other words, Athens really saw a certain idea come home that perhaps they were not the city on the hill. And I guess to close up, it's worth talking about some other ideas that have come home, right? Didion does this. We've been talking about how everything felt drained, leached of history is how she describes it. So here's how she closes out the end of the essay after talking about how there was a brief moment of insanity where a bunch of neocons were talking about how we might need to nuke the Middle East. And that just gets lost in the slipstream of the discourse, but she remembers it. And she says, in the early 80s, I happened to attend at a conservative political action conference in Washington, a session called Rolling Back the Soviet Empire. One of the speakers that day was a kind of adventurer slash ideologue named Jack Wheeler, who was very much of the moment because he had always just come back from spending time with our freedom fighters in Afghanistan, known as the Mujahideen. I recall that he received a standing ovation after urging that copies of the Quran be smuggled into the Soviet Union to stimulate an Islamic revival and the subsequent death of a thousand cuts. We all saw that idea come home. And that's what we're talking about here. These ideas have come home. This strange culture war that the left has really been fighting since the 60s and 70s has finally come home. It is now the CIA's playbook. CIA is no longer doing COINTELPRO to infiltrate these groups. It, in fact, is these groups. <laughs> Which is kind of what we saw when we looked at the Lash piece. Yep. Too. Like this, this was kind of... St- in the making as a thought absolutely maybe not like as a you know not like conspiratorially or anything just as like this is a part of the like social technology that one mm-hmm. develops through through trying to do this kind of thing you learn like what works and what doesn't and this clearly works better than most things because you know it's I think one of the, just to say uh, for an argument for ambiguity and and art and things, I really like Thomas Pynchon Mm. and I feel like reading that I'm like, yeah, like this is, this is the world that I live in. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you get a message, you're not sure where it comes from or who sent (laughs) it. You think, you know, yeah. And then you act upon it and then other people are acting upon other messages and somehow you all end up doing something weird together. And then like, you sense that maybe something's wrong and you try to figure out like, well, where did this come from? Like, how did this all start? And you don't know. And there's no answer. It's all like vast and sort of strange and dark and whatever, like sort of thing that pushed you to go do something has now receded so far into the darkness that you could never track it down. But it's also constantly interacting with a thousand such other things that are working in our social world. Mm -hmm. And I think reading that and, and other things that are pretty similar and kind of looking at like what's going on, like uh, 
just things often make no sense and like protests that seemingly have no impetus like materialize and then vanish and it's all very hazy and murky and you know to say that like oh no it's just so obvious that it's all Mm -hmm. like totally above board in the bright clear open sky of the truth Mm -hmm. anyone can look at it and know that this is what's going on I don't believe that. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, you know, like I, something has kind of often bothered me about the, the, I guess you would say the left. I don't know that it means anything to say the left, but I guess it's kind of a useful term for us all still Mm -hmm. to use. Whatever cultural entity is like generating these ideas in a way that they get incorporated to American life. I'm not really talking about an actual political movement outside of the ambient of the DNC. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But there's this like tendency and it's probably like just ubiquitous, but I've seen it there a lot where there was like, you know, oh, like the media should be good. Like the media should put out like this message. This is like the righteous message or whatever. And I'm like, do you know like how the media works? Like people were talking (laughs) about this, like before you were born, you could have read the books, watched the documentaries. Like, you know, like it doesn't work like that. You don't want your message in the media. (laughs) That's the point at which you completely lose it. Like, I'm surprised that you're that naive if you're like, you know, like what happened to all of the work of like all of the activists and scholars and people who were thinking about like how the media works or how our society seems to function or what it means to want to be non-hegemonic or whatever. Like, cause I feel like when I was a teenager and I was starting to immerse in that kind of thing, that was some, some of the first stuff that I learned, you know? even really just basic stuff, like what I would consider basic, like Chomsky's media criticism, like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that alone could insulate you from so much of this completely like credulous sort of treatment of how things work. And that is just totally gone. And yeah, I mean, it reminds me of, um, you know, everybody loves these spots. Spontaneity is somehow a political asset. I don't know why it seems to work in contrast with strategy, but okay. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we all like plenty of people love these spontaneous protests that happen over the course of, of 2020 and things like that. And then of course, you know, Black Lives Matter, the organization releases like its recent list of like aspirations or demands. And they're basically like, I want the DNC to clamp down on our, the Republicans using Patriot act like stuff. And it's basically clear. They're just like an astroturfed DNC group that has received billions of dollars from like people like Jack Dorsey and stuff like that. Um, again, lamb's blood over the door frame. And I couldn't help but think of a Zizek line that like really like changed my life. <laughs> When he said, um, you know, at the end of V for Vendetta, where they all spontaneously don the Guy Fox masks and storm parliament and it's all, all over. He was like, I would sell my own mother into slavery to get V for Vendetta too. That starts the morning after that happens. (laughs) 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 Oh, oh shit. He's so funny. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's, there's something really, 
I don't know. If, I feel like if you kind of understand the way that things work and what's going on, then you would have almost no desire to be a part of it or like any way plugged into it because there's literally nothing to be gained and like maybe something to be lost at least. Mm-hmm. Like there's no reason to talk to these people, to be involved with them, to try and be a part of that discourse or anything. Like there's things you can do with your life, many things. And there are probably lots of better choices. You can indeed of, exit the vampire's castle. Yeah. Like you could even go out there and do something. Like, I'm not saying that you can't do anything meaningful because I don't know, like maybe you're supposed to, but like that probably isn't going to involve what seems to be designed solely to exhaust people's energy in an endless cycle of like non-productive exhaustion. Yeah. And, and anger and, and outrage. I mean, I guess, I guess I want to close with this. I want to read a poem by Nick Flynn that I've been thinking about a lot. Something that a um, friend of the show, Adrian, tweeted out, reminded me of it. And I haven't been able to stop thinking about it for the past couple of days. And it's called Self-Exam. My body is a cage. Do this. Take two fingers. Place them on the spot behind your ear. Either ear. The spot where your skull drops off into that valley of muscle and nerve. That is the muscle that holds up the skull, that turns the dumb bone this way and that, that nods your face up and down when you think you get it. Press deeper, touch the little bundle of nerves buried there, buried in the gristle, the nerves that make you blink when the light bewilders you that make your tongue slide in and out when you think you're in love, when you think you need a drink. Touch that spot as if you have an itch. Close your eyes and listen. Please close your eyes. Can you hear it? We think our souls live in boxes. We think someone sits behind our eyes, lording in his little throne, steering the fork to the mouth the mouth to the tit. We think hungry children live in our bellies and run out with their empty bowls as the food rains down. We sometimes think we are those hungry children. We think we can think anything and it won't matter. We think we can think, cut out her tongue and then ask her to sing. So I think we'll leave it there. Stay safe out there, guys. Catch you next week.